Sometimes right, Reverend Pastor Jonathan Fisk here with the good Dr. Reverend Adam Kuntz, two white guys talking about a brief history of power, trying to figure out where we stand in the present age and what on earth to make of it. We've already addressed the fact that the planet's run by lizard men. Uh, we have addressed the fact that human civilization more or less lives from revolution to revolution, bloody waging of death from below to above, back and forth, all in the name of freedom for all that ends up in Caesar, Caesar, and then let's kill Caesar too. What else could we possibly talk about that could be more offensive than all of this today? I, I think the question, when is a Jew not a Jew, might be about as offensive as we can get, especially, I mean, honestly, Adam, uh, anti-Semitism is on the rise in New York particularly, in New York City particularly, against what I would otherwise call not the Jews who are running New York, right? These are uh, culturally enclave-ish groups of people, right? Um, whether they are wealthy or not, I, you know, I don't know. I don't care. But there is uh, a track record of violence escalated in the last two years or so within New York uh, with that actual anti Shemitism, which is where I really want to go in this conversation. So there's okay. my opening lob. I'm offensive. What about you? <laughs> Well, and when you're talking about New York, I mean, uh, specifically Brooklyn, uh, the issue there is that anti-Semitism is maybe not even specific to the fact, or it's at least intermixed with something that is not specifically ethnic. So anti-Semitism doesn't generally involve all the sons of Shem, which would include uh, Arabs and uh, Middle Easterners uh, to various degrees. It's usually specifically about Jews, which is generally, although not always, which we're going to talk about, an ethnic issue. I think in Brooklyn, it's also mixed with something that is distinct, but not entirely separate from ethnicity, which is race. So when you're talking about uh, development and uh, gentrification in Brooklyn uh, or uh, communal tension in Brooklyn uh, between Blacks, largely uh, American Blacks, it's an ethnic distinction, uh, not necessarily African immigrant blacks, but American blacks and Jews, you also have another issue, uh, which may or may not actually be recognized as the, by those Jews as, as pertinent, which is that they are understood by the blacks as white. Right. And so the, the strife there is, is racial, at least from one side, and also ethnic and also religious on top of that. I guess to like my favorite thing in all of this is what does it even mean to be white? And for me particularly, thinking about, again, so anti-Semitism comes from the belief that they're all descended from this guy named Shem at a certain point. And I'm like, cool with that. I'm like, okay, I agree with your heritage. So in that heritage, there there's some others involved. There's there's some Hamites and there's some, some Japhethites. And the, <laughs> the thing is that the only one that would not be white would be the Hamites, basically. Uh, you could then lump some if you can find a pure Shemite today, and that's the question I have a little bit again, right? Is okay. yeah. where is Shemitism today? Because uh, you mentioned offhandedly that there are yeah. at least pockets of Judaism that are not perhaps ethnically Jewish, right? Possibly. So, okay, so let's separate this out. So, yeah, like it's, on, it's deep like and on, weird. Okay, on on one level, there's the way that the early chapters of Genesis, which we've discussed before discuss the human family after the flood, right? So the, uh, the Bible teaches that everyone is basically human. And sometimes that's used rhetorically, I think, to some extent unhelpfully, but I know why people say it, that there's only one race, the human race. Okay, that's, that's fine. And they're getting that from the idea that everyone has some sort of 
unity and the Bible builds the fact that everyone should listen to the capital T truth on the basis of we're all human. Okay, there's three different ways of dividing that up based on the three sons of Noah and then their descendants. There's ways in which that's really helpful. Like if you're trying to say, this is why you shouldn't just kill people randomly for their ethnic characteristics or where they're from or what language they speak because they're all human. And you can really, you can defend that easily from a Christian point of view. And you're all family effectively. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're all, you're all, you're all effectively. Yes. Right. The, the issue of race, I think is, is different from that, the way it's been discussed. And I don't want to, whether as a Christian or just a thinking person, ignore the fact that that discussion is something different from saying we're all human. Hmm. I would say that terms like white or black or yellow, not really used anymore, brown, definitely used today. These are all basically from coming into contact with each other. And there are, there are terms like those racial terms that have happened in the past. Um, but the contact, the, the levels of human contact have increased massively in the past 500 years and especially in the past 200 years. And so a term like white is generally simply a term for capturing somebody who is European. It's a term that comes from contact between people that historically, because of limited travel and limited communication, didn't know anything about each other. Right. So the word describes initially contact with a certain edge of what was what we would call Japhethite culture, you call it uh, Indo-European culture, not Indo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Eurasian yeah, culture. Yeah, Eurasian yeah. culture, right? So, and I associate in my mind Japhethites with the cons of Central Asia now. So, so you know, all the cultures that are around that, but they could all be seen as white by those who lived in Africa if they ran into each other. But the place where it really happened was in this triangle of the slave trade. And that language of white then became applied to the white black relationship. And now what I think is so fascinating is that that language is funding its way back all the way through these different cultures into the Shemites, right? Into a completely different people group uh, and, and being applied to them as if, as if there were this kind of universal ethnicity that we could divide each other with. And there's not. Even even the Shemites, the Japhethites, and the Hamites are all sons of Noah, in my mind. So we all are from the same primordial Eve, you know, if you want to say it that way. Right. So I would say, like, race is only helpful. It's a very crude tool. Yes. So I would say that, that using race is sort of like you want to dig a hole. Race is like using, like, a long stick. It's going to dig you a hole faster than using your hands but it's not as good as a shovel. And the shovel, I would say, as far as people groups and how do human beings think of one another and human differences, I would say that what we usually call ethnicity is much more helpful and exact and clean than using race. So an example would be, if I'm classified as white, that's not really based on my ethnicity, which we've talked about before, that's not really like even ambiguous in the same sense that uh, you know, Arabs, Shemites, Middle Easterners, but not Jews, Arabs are usually classified, have been historically by the U.S. Census as white. Hmm, I didn't okay. know that. Wow. Okay. Because, so again, wow. Right. Keep going. <laughs> because, because the U.S. historically didn't need a bunch of different categories. The whites were largely from Northwestern Europe. The blacks were largely from West Africa. 
uh, Indians and Hispanics, Hispanic being a white term for Latin Americans, they have all their own classifications, were statistically negligible historically for the census, Arabs just get kind of lumped under white. So the difference between, say, Jews and Arabs, which is really, really important in Israel, doesn't matter for the U.S. Census historically. And that's just because that's actually because race is a very crude way of classifying. Ethnicity is more helpful. It's more helpful to know, for instance, that the U.S. was largely Northwestern European. And that's why Arab and difference between Jew and Arab didn't matter. See, that's where I like the word lineage for this a lot. Uh, Ethnicity, I still think it's tied to the race word, although I'm going to advocate for a second that if you are a Christian, you cannot escape this because the word ethnicity, ethne, is in the scriptures. It's not quite the same. It means everyone is not a Jew. Like literally, everyone is not a Jew. It's the meaning of the word, and it's the Jewish word for that. So it's it's their pejorative against us, but it is the word ethne in Greek that then comes down to us to describe distinctions between peoples. Basically, I mean, so you know what it is. Yeah, and from the perspective of the people who largely write the Bible, who are ethnically largely homogenous, they're Jews. They're they're although that's not their word for themselves, which I'm going to talk about later. They're they're Jews. Uh, it gets the job done. That's the point. I mean, a lot of things that feel pejorative if you're not from that group are simply crude tools because you don't need anything better. So if a stick gets the job done, you don't need to invent a shovel, right? Um, If, for instance, if you grow up in a small town, you know when people aren't from your small town. It doesn't really matter where they're actually from. It only matters that they're not from there. Hmm. And the term like Jew versus Gentile or Greek versus barbarian, which the Greeks really need when they start expanding outward. We should use that job one. Done. We should use that one. Civilized versus a barbarian is one I'm going to be using <laughs> a lot these days. You can't argue with there the you barbarian. Go. You yeah. cannot argue yeah. with the barbarian. That is a fact. Right. And so when someone right. is just going to shout at you, that's what they're deciding they're going to be. Um, you had another good one there too, but but so so let's let's take this toward the more well, what's the direction you kind of just brought up? So when is a Jew really not a Jew in the sense of the Bible? And what the Bible says, right. when did the Jews become the Jews in the sense of the Bible? And then yeah. eventually where we're going a little bit is what does that have to do with the Quakers? But we'll, we'll see if we can fit that in, <laughs> fit okay. that in later. Let me, I, can I, let me do the Quakers first because okay. I think that the Quakers are the Quakers are much harder to talk about ethnically because they are much less ethnically self-aware than Jews, either in the past or today. Um Quakers, if you read a really interesting book about early America called Albion Seed, seed being a very biblical word to talk about things like lineage, Albion Seed, David Hackett Fisher, who's just a historian of early America, talks about the different streams of British ethnicity that predominate in early America. Early America is like 90% British, European Caucasian, Japhethite, whatever word you want to use. Mm-hmm. I find Caucasian to be probably the most useless. Uh, but anyway. I like uh, Hussar. Can we just call ourselves Hussars while we're at it? <laughs> we're going to talk about Caucasians. I, I would, well, I, I would prefer, based on their kind of awesome reputation among ancient peoples, I would prefer Scythian. Oh, there you go. I'm with you. I'm fully with you. Yes, everyone's, everyone's scared of them. And when the Greeks want to feel free, they leave the claustrophobia of the city-state, and they'll go to live for six months with the Scythians who ah. ride horses and drink raw milk. Yes, right? so yes. I would and, and eat Scythian. the blood of their horses and are also known in other <laughs> right. places as the Umanmanda, which is yeah. absolutely awesome. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, the cons. It's the cons. The Japhethites are the cons, and there's no reason not to be happy that 
that happened. Then again, yeah. it explains so much of history in such evil ways, though. It's kind of scary, Adam, but let's not go that way. Let's go back to yeah. the Quakers. It's easy to pick okay, on so, them. So the Quakers are one of the four streams that, that Fisher says are really important in early America. Hmm. Uh, the other three being um, Virginia planters who are from southern England, uh, the Scots-Irish uh, who form Appalachia, and then a lot of the South. Um, and then also uh, New England Puritans. The Quakers are basically entirely from Northern England, specifically Northwestern England, an area with very heavy Viking influence genetically, something we can now know. And they have always had a different approach to religion, uh, to attachment to the rest of England, and that gets transferred here. The really difficult thing about Quakers is that ideologically, they can't really admit that because of this really kind of flat understanding of being human that says everyone has light inside him and he just needs to wake up to it. Let's so flip that le- for a second. Let's, let's, let's yeah. dwell on that for just a second. So what you're saying, yeah. here, this is where the Quakers are just like the Jews and it's really, really weird. They have a race and ethnicity, yeah. Yeah, a, right. a lineage – that is right. also a religion. There's not a lot of these. There really yeah. aren't that many of these. Right. I mean, cast Hinduism, I suppose. Right. But but and then um, and then Judaism uh, very much. So yeah. that fact and, and that they don't maybe know this. No, that's no, your point, right? I mean, it, yeah. In a way, they're they're. It's kind of like early Islam, where it's very definitely Arab, but it can't really admit to itself that it is. Hmm. Right. Christianity, like Orthodox Christianity, by virtue of being a religion that translates incessantly in order to communicate, can admit that there are components to living that are ethnically, culturally, linguistically specific. Quakerism can't do that. So, for instance, they'll send a woman to preach to the sultan of the Ottoman Empire she doesn't know Turkish. She doesn't know Arabic. She's a woman. And she's going to go preach to this guy. Obviously, it doesn't work. <laughs> they also send women to preach in early New England. Those women, bad things happen to them. They, they that's are, not among, they are that's what, not among the, the native peoples or the, or the indigenous no, no, people? among no? the Puritans. Oh, no, among they're the preaching, Puritans. They're preach, they're, so they're pre, so those oh, the Quakers are going to the Puritans. Understand. The Quakers oh, are going goodness. to the Puritans. With women's ordination back in the 1600s. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, this is why Samuel Johnson in the 18th century makes this remark about a woman preaching is like seeing a dog walking. You're amazed that it's even happening. And the reason that he says that is because of Quakers. Huh. Okay. Right, right. Which, which again, <laughs> let's, let's back up. So you're, you're quoting someone yeah. who was very uh, pejoratively uh, rude in the way he described Women, yes. well, the way we Samuel would talk Johnson. today, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But but he was writing long, long ago about something that yeah. we, if we transported back, then you would never find this anywhere except among no. the Quakers. And it has to do no. with this central belief of theirs that all people are good, and it's not just a little bit of a belief. It's so deep into the center of what they believe that it is everything right. that they do. Pacifism is it. Pacifism to the to the absolute nth degree of it. Yeah, right. And, yeah. And yet, somehow then, that, that is a major influence on the Americana right now, too, right? Because that's part of why we're talking about this. Right? It's the streams of yeah, America. So, right. Because what is kind of strange, if you follow American history, is that things that Quakers are professing in, like, the, like the 17th century end up being normal in the modern world. So, 
um, women being preachers. Yes. Everyone being thought of as essentially the same in basically every way that matters. Every culture being sort of flat and everyone being essentially the same and wanting the same things in life. Pacifism being obviously the best thing. Violence never, ever, ever, ever being good or even... And all these are tenets of the Quaker religion that did not exist. Was that... Yeah, from the first. Yeah, and they did not exist as normative in any place in the world except for among the Quakers, but now they are normative in Western-spreading conglomerate American civilization, which doesn't necessarily believe all these things all the time, but it certainly is a major – I mean all the things that you just said, we hear people say all the time, and they're assumed to be true, and if you would question them, you'd almost be suspect. Well, we kind of – like for instance, I mean lots of Christians assume that complete religious freedom is normal and natural and even what the Bible teaches. And in the 17th century, basically only the Quakers think that. So they are in many ways the architects of the modern West. But then they had this interaction. They had this interaction with those Northeastern Puritans, which we've talked about before. How so much of America is explained by the Puritan city on a hill mentality, and then uh, the Southern British, you know, the the actual colonized colonies for the the trade. Right? I'd be interested to hear at some point in the future how that ties in, how the Scotch Irish tie in. But now let's let's see if we can move from the Quakers a little bit into the similarities between them and colonial Israel for for the sake mm-hmm. of again brief history of power. If you want to understand what's going on in the world today, you have to understand the USA. You have to understand the nation state of Israel, and then from yeah. there you got to understand everybody that doesn't like that, <laughs> right? And kind of, so, so this is where we're yeah. going. Yeah, I mean. Uh- because a lot of people will say, oh, uh, you know, and Ronald Reagan is doing this uh, as late as the 1980s. America is a city on a hill. Puritans say that about themselves in early New England. There are, way, there are many ways in which early America tries to resemble biblical Israel. I would say that the Quakers are important because they resemble the Jews as they actually are in the modern world. That is, they're not terribly open to conversion They are a relatively small group of people in almost every society, but because of their success in many ways, especially in business, both Quakers and Jews, they're tremendously influential on what that society comes to look like. The big difference is that the Quakers are not ethnically self-aware, or when they are, it's not really that big of a deal, so they tend to go out of existence. I attended an undergraduate institution that was founded for Quakers by Quakers, uh, for Quakers to meet each other. It still calls itself the Quaker Matchbox. That's where <laughs> Quakers get matched up and have Quaker babies. That basically doesn't happen anymore. They don't exist. There will be like one to two Quakers in every class of 300-some kids. They don't exist. So then, but, but they do exist as a people group out on the farm still, correct? But Nope. No? Because nope. I'd heard that they've nope. been expanding. Uh, no, that I mean the Amish, not the Quakers. Oh, you're right. The Amish, not the Quakers. You're right. Yeah. So, so okay, but their ideology went on. So this is the question for both, in my mind, for both the city on the hill mentality of the Puritans as Protestants, yeah. and I would say yeah. as heretics a little bit, um, really on the edge of it, um, and the Quakers definitely yeah. heretics in, in the Christian sense. So this yeah. is not a Christian movement, but it's language from the Bible that was infused into their vision of the future civilization on this rock, right? Yes. And that reality continues to be something that impacts us today with religious fervor in this country. So did the yeah. Quakers really go away, or did they just become what we are? We just puritanical Quakers that are really protecting the slave trade. Oh, that's a scary question, Adam. That's a very scary. Did I ask that? Are we going to publish this? Is this deep state? I'm not going deep I would, state. 
I would I would say that modern the modern West, including America, but not limited to America, has Puritan self-confidence in its own righteousness with Quaker beliefs. Hmm. It doesn't have Puritan beliefs. It has Quaker beliefs. Interesting. Um, and so uh, that but it's is run by the money. That's my final. There's three is run by the money, right? Okay, it is it's run by money because one of the things that is sort of a lie about the thoroughgoing egalitarianism of Quakers in the past and today is that somehow we will all be the same. Hmm. There's really no way to do that, which is why pushes for equality uh start with equality of opportunity but always become about equality of outcome. Hmm. Right? So it always starts with well we're all the same by nature. Okay, fine, I can admit that abstractly. 40 years later, why aren't we all the same? Why don't we all have the same income? Why don't we, why don't we all have the same life? Oh, that must be because we have to fix not only what goes in, but also how it comes out. Equality of outcome, a really interesting book by Christopher Caldwell about this recent book, The Age of Entitlement, tracks that story in, in late 20th century America. We started with, we're all going to be the same starting out. Now, why are we, we're always debating, why aren't we all the same? We have to fix that. I'm going to maintain and, this is such a religious fervor thing because from yeah, every point totally. of view, scientifically and mathematically, it's nonsense. It is utter, total nonsense. And I can point you to guys like Tlaib and I can point you to stuff like physics. You can go really deep on how chaos is what we see. And if you try to impose order on chaos, you will create more chaos. But yeah. out of the chaos, we can observe order does arise. But that system, you know, which I mean, math arises, right? And then physics, uh, rules and laws arise. But that system, they're trying to actually stop the chaos. They don't want diversity, actually. Right. And in doing that, what they create is more chaos because the, the what is it? The, the, the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God is what I'd say there on that one. You know, our, whoever, whatever you think, uh, mankind looks out for himself first. And when he starts trying to make a level playing field, he's always on the highest part of it. Right. And this, the, the kind of incessant revolution that we talked about in the last episode occurs especially because equality never actually delivers what it promises. And that's why we want to talk about modern Israel today, because if you think about it, it is, it is a very strange sort of a place. It is a kind of settler, European settler state that is still openly and honestly simply for the benefit of that settler group, right? So it would be as if America had all the same legal structure that it did in, say, the 1920s, where whites, and especially Northwestern European whites in immigration law, are favored over all other groups. Right? Mm -hmm. So in, in modern Israel, you still have Jews. Now, we'll talk about how complicated that gets. You still have Jews uh, given supremacy over Arabs. Israel exists as a Jewish state, it is mm -hmm. for Jews. And that has recently been re-enshrined in law by virtue of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's long tenure as prime minister mm -hmm. and his, his success in getting that enshrined. It is a state for Jews. It is a Jewish nation, and it shall always be so as long as it exists. There's a long story to that. Let's start with the idea of what is a Jew. But let me just ask. Uh, yeah, I'm going to throw a word out. I actually don't want you to, to respond. I want you to go on with what you're doing. I just okay. want to say what's said so often in our culture, racism. Okay? Like by definition, that would yeah. be racism. Now, is it? I, I don't care about <laughs> that word at this point. It's lost its meaning a yeah, little bit. Yeah, but what is does. interesting yeah. is it is a country 
with an ideology and that ideology will have consequences because whatever you think yeah. is going to have a consequence in an action. So that's why I want right. you to continue with what you're planning yeah. to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it's a country enshrined around equality for Jews mm. and that should benefit all Jews. We'll see how it doesn't. But the issue of what is a Jew is one that's contested both in the past and in the present. In the past, you'll notice if you look at the Bible, that the word Jew doesn't occur until Jew is sort of like the term white. It doesn't need to exist until you encounter people who aren't. Hmm. Okay. And then it becomes a term that both the in-group and the out-group use for you. Okay. So Jew is a term from after the people that call themselves Israelites, Israel, get kicked out of their land. Okay. They're, the Bible, we can, we can go into why the Bible says that happens another time. When they get kicked out, they begin to be identified by this term that really is only attached to one tribe, but it's the predominant tribe among the exiles, Judah. They begin to be identified by the Babylonians and the Persians, the people among whom they're exiled, as Jews, uh, Yehudim. Uh, and so when they come back, the place they come back to is called by the Persians who are in charge of it at the time, Yehud. Okay, or beyond the river, Yehud. So from that time, Jew is a kind of outside word for this group. The group, when they're talking to each other, and you see this even in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, when Jesus is talking about his own people to his own people, he talks about Israel mm -hmm. or Israelites. Yeah. But when they're talking about themselves to outsiders, or when outsiders are talking about them, they're called Jews. So Jesus is crucified. The writing above his head says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Keep on, keep on, keep on. So that question of, well, what is a Jew is one that's going to persist down to today. And if you learn about Israel, this is why the questions of race and ethnicity never stop being difficult, even when they're seemingly a group and the entire state is organized in their favor right? So think about this when we talk, usually racially, but I'd say a lot of our racial discussions have ethnic components in modern America, because there's a history, there's a language, blah, 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 blah. When we talk about, let's say we talk about reparations, so the law is going to work in favor of this group, this group is going to get money, this group is going to get jobs, whatever it is we're fighting about. When you look at modern Israel, that group always has subgroups, okay? So in ancient times, the group of Jews had 12 subgroups called right, tribes. Right. Today, to some extent, that's been preserved. There are people who say, yeah, I'm a, I, I'm a priest, right? If you meet somebody who's Jewish named Cohen, right? They, they probably have some sort of priestly descent. But a lot of that is, is organized over the hit, around the history that's happened since ancient times. So in Israel... And in world Jewry, all Jews across the world, the vast majority of people are what are called Ashkenazim, which is originally the Bible word for what we think of as maybe maybe like Germany or Central Europe, Ashkenaz. So prior to uh, World War II, probably 90% of Jews across the world were Ashkenazim. Now it's probably more like 70 to 80. When Jews began to come back to what was then Ottoman Palestine in the late 19th century in big numbers, because they, they always sort of remained, but the area was largely ethnically Arab, still Shemite, but Arab, not Jewish, and uh, was uh, maybe equally Muslim and Christian. We're talking like the late 19th century, so this is the time of 
European colonialism across the world, kind of just like unabashedly, like no problem, right? Uh, lots of places are founded at this time. The yeah, sun never set on the British Empire. I mean, right, history right. of power, you got to know it's there. We'll talk about it more eventually, but it's right. they, they conquered the planet. Right. The so at the, planet. at the time that there are lots of European settler states across the world, uh, including the United States, Canada, Australia, blah, 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 Rhodesia, South Africa. At the same time, Jews from Europe begin to resettle in large numbers, and there's different waves of this. They're called the Yishuvim, the settlements. There's the first Yishuv, second Yishuv. They begin to go back to Israel. Some of them do this for religious reasons. The vast majority that actually resettle are doing it for purely, we would say, ethnic reasons. That is, they say, and the father of Zionism, which is what the ideology around it comes to be called, Theodore Herzl says, look, the Jews can't live in Europe because we'll never be a normal people and we'll always have problems. And it's interesting, Herzl says, some of that is the fault of the, of the European Christians, Germans, French, whatever. Some of that is the fault of the Jews because we become worse people when we don't have our own land. So I'm explaining their ideology. They say, if we move back to Israel, we, wow. Palestine at the time, we will become better people because wow. we, we can we will have land so we'll, we'll farm like normal people do which is we'll good. have a military yeah. yeah yeah we will be we will that be normal that's some agrarian and, stuff there i get that yeah it's very it, well it's very agrarian that's why when they when they come they largely settle in groups uh communal farms called kibbutzim a kibbutz uh they're they're called the kibbutzniks and they and they want to resettle the land they want to leave the cramped village life, the city life of Eastern and Central Europe, especially, and resettle the land. Where, by the way, they were – what? what is this? Reparations. They were exiled against their will, not the people today, per se, but many, 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 many moons ago, forcibly by the sword, taken from their property, wife and child killed or raped and all this kind of stuff, and the whole civilization, right? The Assyrians were no joke, another bit of the history of power. We'll talk about them. Um, no. So it's not like they kept their ethnic identity. They kept their lineage mm -hmm. through all of that because of their religion and because yeah. the religious tie that it has to their ethnicity, which is about their beliefs about who a Messiah shall be and ours yeah. as well. Um, yeah. What's interesting then is to see how that without that religion as the driving factor, they're doing what that religion would have them do as the driving right. factor, yeah. minus the part that there are some, I believe, that would affirm this. They were kicked out of their own land again by their God, and it's up to him to bring them back. And, and you know that's a different debate. But, yeah. but they're still trying to live the Old Testament religion, which is this land is for you from God to be a people who are good, right? And right. it's right. weird to hear him as like a, in a materialist way, secular way confessing that anyway go back to the land so, it'll make us good right and so some, some that is that is all mixed with um elements of 19th century european you could say white culture um and the ashkenazim are going to be understood when they come to america also in israel itself when it becomes a state as as white Israel, had, from its founding, has always had things like a symphony orchestra and archaeological museums. And now, now, can we call day. that Western, or well, or those, is it just those, white? I mean, those things and the way and the ways that they are just sort of cultural practices are brought with them from the 19th century, including I, like things that people don't even think about, but like hiking in groups. This is a big yeah, deal for yeah. European nationalists in the 19th century, Germans, Bohemians, lots of folks. 
why just coincidentally does that only happen in the Middle East today in Israel? It's because the people that founded Israel were 19th century European nationalists. Huh. So there's a hiking trail, uh, Shavi Yisrael, uh, that you can go on. It's a, it's a network of trails. And the reason you do that is because from the first, and every Israeli school child does this, Jewish, not Arab, the reason that they do this is because it was found, it was a way to get in touch with the land, just like French nationalists and German nationalists and so on. And, you know, So they bring all of this stuff from Europe. It's not an accident that it exists. Oh, yeah. In and just like hippies, by the way, they just don't have a national tie to it. But they actually – maybe I think maybe they do. And they also have a religious tie. So it's very similar. The need of man for land is, is – we could talk about that just as a, epistemologically a thing. Uh, but I wanted, I wanted to shift it and – well, here's our first break, I suppose, where I'm going to lose my train of thought. <laughs> Was it about intra-Jewish differences or – Oh, no. It's devil's advocate. It's devil's advocate. Okay. 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 Yep. Go so, ahead. All right, so I've given you a lot of lead here because we're establishing the idea to understand lineage. That's really why we're talking about lineage and its perspective on our tribalism that we all embrace one way or the other within a history of power so we can understand where we stand today. But then I've given you all that lead, and and now you just sound like you're pro-Palestinian. Pro-Palestinian, right? <laughs> You're just a Palestinian advocate, and apparently Fisk is a Palestinian ha- pro-Palestinian hack, yeah. and he's anti-Semitic, and he said so earlier, kind of, because he talked about when's a Jew and Jew and all this kind of stuff. So clearly, we're just a bunch of anti-Semites. Hold on here, right? Let's let's uh, let's at least give opportunity for the other other case. I mean, are you saying that all the violence of Hamas is is acceptable, Pastor Coons? Are you saying that's what should, we should be supporting right now? Yeah. Uh, no, not at all. And Good. <laughs> one of the, I mean, I mean, I think it's it's an index. If so far you've been hearing me as pro-Palestinian, it's an index of people not actually knowing what goes on inside Israel that what I'm saying sounded pro-Palestinian because I could take every single word that I already said about the history of Israel and I could position myself as pro-Mizrahi, okay? Hmm. And people don't even know what that is Hmm. because everything that I've said has really been about one subgroup where you could look at it. it's, It's often read as a racial group among Israeli Jews who used to be the vast majority of the population of Israel, the Jewish population, are now a minority of the Jewish population, but are still pretty much the only people who run anything in modern-day Israel, and that is European Jews. And it feels an awful lot like the United States of America when you talk about it that way. As I look at you know certain candidates with certain classes and lineages and, and heritage and how you – I mean you can make your way up there, but like – there's so much of what we are saying there with us, um, and, and in some ways, that's what's being fostered by the BLM stuff, and, and that's where the BLM stuff is not so far away from this colonial Judaism and the Quaker ideas. I actually wrote it down in, in response to it because it's some of the same ideas, right? Yeah, because because what what's going on, and the thing that I appreciate, and I I, I taught myself modern Hebrew in order to start reading scholarship on the Bible, but I also use it to read. Israelis talking to each other because they're much more forthright generally than Americans are about issues that we would describe in America as racial. They're usually ethnic in Israel. When they talk about things like, well, why doesn't this benefit Mizrahi, that is Jews of Middle Eastern origin, or Sephardim, that is Jews of uh, Iberian originally, but that's, you know, don't worry about what happened after Iberia. They went all kinds of places of different lineages. Why, why, why are things so different? Why 
why are so many university students Ashkenazi and not enough are Sephardim or Mizrahi? Can you okay. put that? Can so? Can you give us like an example of yeah. what that would be like here again using the Northeast? If I'm if I'm off and saying yeah, yeah, it sounds yeah. like the Northeast. Yeah. So I mean, an, an example of that, uh, these sorts of things happen very openly in the United States, like within the Catholic Church. So within the Catholic Church, an example would be: uh, This is Chicago. Why is the Archbishop of Chicago not a pole? Hmm. Poles are the biggest ethnicity, right? What because what what has usually happened in the United States, especially in the past fifty years, is that everything is just everything that is European is just white, and we we tend to ignore white ethnicity. But the, like in the in the history of the Catholic Church in America, this would be attention to why is everyone who runs anything Irish? Why does that always have to be? Why can't an Italian be Archbishop of Boston? Why does it have to be an Irishman? Why can't it be a pole in Chicago? Why why can't it be a, a quote white Hispanic in New Mexico? You know, the but usually in America the level of discussion is purely racial. It's it's fairly crude. And, and what it comes down to is that prejudice is an equal opportunity employer. Right? It'll, it'll seize it'll seize on whatever it needs because if you go into okay if you go into Israel you say okay well uh, we only have three Ashkenazi. Uh, guys that are up to become head of the Israeli Defense Forces. Okay, but who, whose father was born in Israel? Hmm. Okay, well, two of the guys, their father was born in Israel. Well, whose grandfather was born in Israel? Oh, only one of them. He gets the job. You see, even when you have homogeneity from the outside, on the inside, there are always more groups, more tribes, more resentments that can be formed. It sounds like a, I believe it's a Aramaic word, Pharisee. Is that right? Is, is that a Hebrew word? Like <laughs> yeah, literally, that, that, yeah. that is yeah. precisely their religion still without, yeah. without God in it at all. It is, and still right. trying to get the yeah. land God gave them it is precisely the religion of the nation state of Israel is to say, and when I say this, be careful here. Don't, don't take me the wrong way. It's the same religion that killed Jesus. I actually believe there's only two at the end of the day and there's Christianity and others. So don't, you know, don't lump me in with a, in a bunch. And I'm not saying go kill Jews because they killed Jesus. Like people in the middle ages wrote that's nonsense. But the mm-hmm. fact is that the pharisaical mindset, which could yeah. not hear the words of Jesus is the one that's running this, this nation now, right? Now, again, am I anti-Semite? Oh, not necessarily, right? I want to understand this. I want to understand this. And I can't yeah. apart from religion because that's part of who they are. And that's kind of my case I'm making here, yeah? Yeah, and you have to understand not just how does the group present itself to the outside world. Because usually if it wants to achieve something, it will be smart and present itself as united. And for certain political goals, it will remain united. The, the reason that they, they will always continue fighting even once they achieve whatever they were going for is because there are always more divisions within the group that you can fight over. There's always more divisions that power can be kind of slotted into. No, there can be so, only one. <laughs> right. So give you just step back from Israel for a second to something more directly controversial. Let's say that we do, we do reparations in the United States as, as has gone on in, let's say, South Africa right? So in South Africa, it, it gets divided up tribally. Okay, in America, do, do we give reparations to everyone who can prove uh, African descent? So we're, there's going to be fights over that. If you emigrated from Ghana in 1973, do you get reparations? Because you really, you might have actually, your ancestors might have helped enslave the people who actually have been here since before America existed, who are Black you still get reparations. So there's always fights that can occur within the group 
even once the group achieve its, achieves its objectives. Yeah, but but the large bludgeon uh, that that is used, I, I don't know if this is a bit too much of a tangent, but um, the language is a bludgeoning object. You use you earlier, you used a pole and a shovel, but I think more of yeah. like a you know a giant uh, warhammer mace versus <laughs> you know a scalpel for right. doing some precise yeah. surgery, right? And right. what we need is the scalpel because when you're dealing with men versus men and women versus women, whatever, uh, when you're dealing with yeah. people versus people, you're dealing with self-interested people versus to self-interested people. And that right. leads to conflict unless there's a real awareness that it can lead to conflict. And we don't want it to because it's worse that way. And, and, right. and But then the, part of this is, gets back to what you were saying. So the, the unity of groups, the unity of lineages, along with mm-hmm. we were born, as you were talking about, the only other mm-hmm. one that tends mm-hmm. to unite is those other guys are going to get us if we don't get them. And so uh, we talked about this before. The tribe is a group of people who see that they are vulnerable in the same way. And that definitely describes the nation state of Israel. That definitely describes yes. Black Lives Matter. Uh, that definitely describes white men right now in America, honestly, yeah. because we also feel very vulnerable based on the on the rhetoric of the day. So that, but this tribalism that unites us against each other is not a path to peace. Again, unless the tribes learn what individuals need to learn within the tribe, which is that um, uh, self interest is. is governing both sides. And if we're not careful and, and don't worry about the interests of all sides, even though they're going to have different outcomes, uh, we're yeah. going to end up in war again, which I, I, I want to say this too. I think it's inevitable. I think wars are inevitable among men because we're just not going to stop. But that doesn't mean right. we have to. Yeah, like We don't have to, but someone's going to. Right. So, And people will say that things like race or ethnicity are completely a social construct. That is, we make it up and we can unmake it. I agree to a certain extent. There are genetic components to things like race and ethnicity. For instance, we, we admit this in cases of genetic disease. We admit that there are certain things that you're more or less susceptible to because of my genetic, because of my lineage, because of my genetic hey, uh, hey, hey, hey. makeup. Men can get uh, ovarian cancer too. If, if they can. <laughs> well, right. And uh, those are the levels of absurdity that we're at when we pretend like biology doesn't exist. I mean, if I move, if I personally, Adam Kuntz, move to somewhere that malaria is prevalent without anti-malarial drugs, I have a much better chance of dying than somebody of West African heritage. Right. That's just the, You're just the open case. to it. But there are elements of race and ethnicity and tribe and any kind of group that you could think of that do have to do with the stories people tell themselves or are told about themselves, right? So if you are told that your group would be amazing if this other group just stopped existing, you're going to not like that other group. Right. If, if, you're told, if, if you really believe yeah. that that is the way yeah, right. to your self-interest, right? If, if that right. is the path to right. my freedom and my, my slavery is hard enough, whatever I define that to be for me, well, then right. I will believe the preacher who tells me – and I used to use the word preacher you know, pejoratively here a little bit um, – the prophet who tells me, go get them. And then I say, that's yeah. my myth. Here I go. You know, I, I pursue symbol and power for myself, and I end up – what? Cain versus Abel. It's like the same old story, and you don't have to believe <laughs> it's a religion to get the point. Right. Yeah, because uh, the reason that when we talked about revolutions in the last episodes, the reason in the last episode, the reason those those things end up eating themselves, they're not working on the basis of race or ethnicity. Human groups don't all have to be organized in the same way. They could be organized around how much money you make or, or how you make your money or, or almost anything. In feminism, they're organized around your sexual biology. 
which we believe actually is real um, and not just a social construct. So uh, when human groups are organized that way and they're organized for certain political goals, whatever, they can achieve those things. Once those things have been achieved, now there's power not to be grabbed, but to be distributed. And the way that it's distributed is going to matter. And it may be distributed, in fact, along lines or groupings that you didn't realize were there until you had the power. And then you figure out, oh, it just so happens that seven out of eight people in charge of us have something in common. Hmm. We didn't pay attention to it because all 50 of us had something in common. But now we see that the people in power, seven out of eight of them have something in common that everybody else doesn't have. And so there's really no end to this process. But can you see how that would be good or evil? So if seven of the eight people in power all have in common deep wisdom. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome, <laughs> right? Right, 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 uh, right. If they right, all happen yeah. to be have in yeah. common, um, we're brothers and uh, you're not us. Yeah. That's a different thing. Although if yeah. they're brothers because of the wisdom, then that's a good thing again. Right. So it's it's I don't mean to be Buddhist on this thing. Right. But but it is sort of a how are you looking at the law? The law is that there right. is okay. an over under. The law is that yeah. there is an inside outside. You cannot make those things go away. We live in space and time. And then what do evil men or broken men or selfish men do with that? And then what yeah. do we do wanting to be better men in the present age? Right. And we still got another 15 minutes at least here. How do we tie this in some way back to our 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 revolting lizard men and the the new caesar of the future and all that okay i would say that if you if you want to govern people who are very very different from each other which is almost every western modern state also including israel to some extent what you're going to do is you're going to leave the groups fighting with each other perpetually and there are lots of ways to achieve that while you yourself do not have to really deal with the consequences of that. So this pertains to something that we've talked about before, and I'm sure we will again, which is skin in the game, hmm. right? So if you look at an American politician who's pushing for more racial integration in a specific suburb, that's totally like fine if that person wants to advocate for that, as long as that person lives in a racially integrated place, Right. okay? But a lot of times they don't. So they won't have to deal with the mixing of groups and the conflicts that come with that. So uh, let's just make it not racial. Let's say it's just ethnic because this feels totally hypothetical these days. They're going to mix an Italian neighborhood with a Polish neighborhood in Chicago in 1910. There are going to be real consequences to that. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your yeah, first right, cigarette right. Yeah, well, to your last dying day. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so... You know, do you, you know go. the reference? I mean, do you know the reference? I know I you know so many things. You know so many things, but you I, don't know entertainment. So <laughs> I don't know entertainment, but I, I had to watch West Side Story in middle school music class. There you go. And of course, I know Romeo and Juliet, so I get it. But um, I mean, what is, is that? That's the Puerto Ricans and who are the white guys? It's, it's the white guys. The Jets yeah, are the white guys. I, New York white guys. Are they Italian? Are they Italian? I don't I can't know. Tell. They, they talk like this. They should, just, you know? they should be some specific ethnicity or the sort of like modern Long Island, half Irish, half Italian. There person. you go. There you go. Everywhere. Yeah. But anyway, um, uh, it just it makes the point, though, that this story is so universal. 
Yeah, it, it is, is such a universal thing. It's totally, it's totally universal because human groupings occur everywhere. So to go back to your like example of brothers, seven out of eight people running a group are brothers. There, there is a certain level at which, even if they're just purely brothers and they're not really that bright, I'm not gonna push because they get to have their family group. It's good. There's a point at which it's good. It's their family group. Right. I'm not like, so I'm not going to move to Texas and demand that everyone start having the same accent that I do. I'm not going to move to Ghana and demand that everyone start having the same genetics that I do or move to Israel and demand that everyone become a Lutheran Christian. I mean, that Christian right, right. is a that, little bit that, different, that, but that, you know yeah, what I'm yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. right? You, you see what I'm saying, right? So uh, what what is happening is that when we are when we are forced by just, the conditions of modernity, especially modern communication and travel technology, to be together, it is to the benefit of people who want to control you to set you constantly at odds with each other by any means possible. This doesn't mean that you have every interest in common and you just have to wake up to the fact that you're all totally the same. That's not the case. But when you are set against each other incessantly, either with or against your will, that is to the benefit of people who can sell you some semblance of life. So what you can see in modern America is that the average income of someone who works eight hours a day, their wages are stagnant since the 1970s, but income inequality, especially in our wealthiest states, California, New York, et cetera, I mean, some people are vastly more wealthy than they were in the 70s. Hey, have you heard that out west they're panning for gold in California? It like runs in the streams. No, and I look, there's all these that. pamphlets. They've printed them right here. Check this out. Oh, you yeah. get, you, it's, they're practically <laughs> giving it away. You're going to need yeah. a cart and a horse. I got food for you right here. And you want to buy a yeah. shovel before you go. Mm. I mean, it's, it's well, that easy. And that's how it's still it, working that way. Yeah, the whole BLM yeah, protest does. right now, they're throwing them peanuts. It's the circus. We're back in Rome with the Colosseum. They're letting the, the, the plebeians riot just enough to satiate them. And then they're going to they're going to shove them back down into the same complete and probably worse, less policed, less cared for, less taken care of neighborhoods than they were in before. Yeah. And it, that's yeah. why it bothers me. That's my skin in the game. You dropped the book. I'm going to just drop the name to same yeah. to leave. Um, he's got a number yeah. of books. They're all, all worth reading a new one about being an idiot coming out uh, in, in October, I think. But OK, <laughs> so I got I got all these two questions here okay. and they're kind of going to connect with each other. But uh, I want to ask you first. So what is your skin in the game regarding the existence of the nation state of Israel? Why do you even want to talk about that? My skin in the game is because I find Israel like the medieval prince bishop that we talked about in the last episode. I find Israel to be, at least inside itself, when they talk to each other, much more forthright about what is going on and what people's interests are from all sides than we usually are in the United States. So I said in the last episode, part of the reason that whites are ideologically divided in the U.S. is because they are not really allowed to have their own interests. So white conservatives will say, this, no, this isn't necessarily good for white people, but it's great for black people. And white liberals will actually say the same thing, but they'll just maybe be happier that it's not good for white people. I find Israeli politics refresh, refreshing in that, like Lebanon, where Nassim Taleb is from, people are relatively forthright about what their group's interests are. And I find that generally not, it's, it's not that it necessarily works better, but it, it, it is at least more honest hmm. 
than uh, societies where a group is identified, but it only has negative characteristics. It, it's not even allowed to express positive interests for itself. I think the connection between the the Prince Bishop from Munster, uh, the story from last time, episode two, and uh, distinction between that and, say, the Fanatical Prophet. And so you're advocating uh, a forthright tribalism based upon just real lineage and honesty that were diverse, uh, right. as opposed to a pretended non-tribalism that has everybody equal, but in fact is suppressing everybody uh, through right. through a, right. uh, any, right. any number of, of this- deceptions. And that and that can go that can have as many layers to it as are necessary for a particular political discussion. So on the layer of like affirmative action, just the fact that I'm white and my wife and children are white legally means that uh, that I have certain skin in the game there that a black American doesn't have. If you're talking about taxation inside a state like, say, Pennsylvania, where I'm from, but I don't live now. I, the fact that I'm from central Pennsylvania is what matters, not the fact that I'm white. So I don't want to pay for Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, even though other white people live there. So if we can be forthright about things, and also that any given group has both positive and negative interests, most likely because it's human, I just find that more honest and refreshing. And uh, that's why I like to read uh you know, Israelis talking about Israel. Well, so if, if you're having to deal with a shared amount of land that's not big enough for two people, honesty is the best way to come to terms with it and deal with it so you don't kill each other yeah. now or and, hate and, each and other. It, yeah, right. And it doesn't mean that you're going to end up actually being a better human being. Like, I'm not saying the Prince Bishop uh, right, uh, right. Munster was a better human being, or I'm not really making a decision on, like, what the Israelis should have done in 1948 or today. I'm just saying that it's a better start politically uh, when talking about power, which is, I think, what politics is really about. It's about the division of power and the benefits that accrue to it. It's better to start with honesty rather than cloaking certain things or uh, pretending that certain things that are that are there really aren't. Better the devil you know. Right. <laughs> I got one for everything. Uh, so uh, the other question is, I don't know if we've done this yet, and I want to make sure we do, and I think you can. So what is the Palestinian case against the nation-state of Israel and its merits Uh, and your opinion of its merits, but only after you've made the best case you can for it? Okay. Yeah, let me make the case. I mean, the historical case is it's sort of cynical for people who don't even necessarily believe the things in in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, happened. It's pretty cynical for them to say, actually, this is our land. We just haven't lived here for a thousand plus years. So the the claim is historically tenuous to Israel-Palestine by Jews. In addition to that, the way that it was taken was unjust. Arab villages were depopulated by any means necessary because they knew that with a UN mandate, they could get away with it. And they had the backing of the Western powers Uh, from the First World War onward. They had the backing of the Western powers, and especially after World War II, Uh, when Israel uh, was coming into being against the will of the British largely and what they wanted to happen there, the the Jews had the backing of America, which was the world's vastly preeminent power at that time. Um, So it's both untrue and unjust for the Jewish state to exist. That would be the Palestinian case. I uh, have skin in the game as a Christian uh, because the Christians in Israel and Gaza and the West Bank the Christians are vastly predominantly Arabs. Right. Um, there, it has definitely been to the detriment of Christianity for there to be a specifically Jewish state. 
I think that there were better visions of what could have existed, even with the levels of explicitly illegal Jewish immigration in the 30s and 40s, uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s, uh, against the will of everyone in charge. Even with those levels, even after World War II, there were better solutions than to say there will be a state, it will be officially uh, pro-Jewish. Just the way that I think that there were better solutions than uh, what America came up with to the issue of uh, racial groups living next to each other in the South after the Civil War. Is there a solution um, outside of war? Like extermination? <laughs> World War? There was. There was. At this point, I don't know whether uh, Israel will ever accept that. Um, and since the 1970s, the rise, both demographically and politically, of something that really didn't matter when Israel came into being, which was a Jewish religion, it didn't matter. Um, it was statistically negligible, and they had no po the political power was exercised for Israel's first before it existed as a state. Let's include really its entire existence up to the 1970s. Israel was a secular leftist nationalist state. It was much more similar to Sweden politically hmm. and the sweetest concept of, a, of a, a folks home, a home for a specific ethnic group that would be socialistic and fair. That's what Israel was. Israel is now demographically, uh, the Jews are majority Middle Eastern. They are much more religious than they have ever been before. And the right has largely been in control. And the right in Israel is fairly openly racially or maybe ethnically against Arabs. Um, it is anti-Christian. They is kind of can I say they kind of Muslim. are they are the image that is wanted to be projected upon the right in America by liberal yeah. media. <laughs> totally, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the way that a lot of Democrats talk about Republicans is actually true of Likud and its assorted parties and its coalition in Israel. So then, do Republicans, by supporting them, justly deserve the accusation? No, not at all. No, I mean Republicans. I mean, the, I, the, so I Republicans, I... Republicans would have to put forward, they would have to put forward Trump, not as happening to be a white male, they would have to put forward Trump and say, look, if you want to further the future of white people in the United States, you must vote for Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, yeah. That would be I'm the talking equivalent. about I'm talking about on the global, the U.S. Does Israel exist without the U.S.? The U.S. is still the, the military backing of Israel. You could make that case. It's the Republican platform that maintains promotion of the, the nation state of Israel. And so as a result, the accusation doesn't apply to us and our actual politics here. But the fact that Republicanism maybe exists only to keep the nation state of Israel going because – and I, I – as a, a voting Republican, I'm probably going to vote yeah. Trump after all, right? But yeah. yet my party never – until Trump never actually did anything it said it was going to do. And what Trump is so interesting about is he's actually doing Republican policy. It's kind of refreshing even though he can't get any credit for it. But anyway, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that Israel could exist without the United States, but it would be very imperiled yeah. without the United States. Yeah. I mean World War Four again, right? War is yeah. there. Specifically, without Four, the three. American, Jew without the American Jewish community, Israel would be in very bad shape. I think that America is tremendously important to Israel as a place for political and financial power, and without America, it would be in great danger. Even though it does almost undoubtedly have nuclear weapons, it would still right, be in right. great danger. Hence, my question still then, though, is the accusation against republicanism rightly? levied 
if we do not or if we if we don't even say anything about that kind of that kind of Zionism. Not that there would be any place for Jews to be safe. I'm not against that mm-hmm. at all. I want to be mm-hmm. safe myself. Uh, but mm-hmm. right. but the kind of uh, militantly non-religious yet ethnically driven Zionism, um, if we support that openly, I mean, what's so? Let's let's just go the other way. How about you mm-hmm. make the best case for why America should continue to support the nation state of Israel in a political sphere, or should we? I don't know. I think we should be far more neutral about it than we are because it in, it involves issues that are really not in the interest not of ours. hardly any Americans. Uh, Wilsonianism even, comes home to roost. Yeah, even even American Jews who are not by any majority religious Zionists. It, it's not really in our interest uh, to militarily defend a small nation state in a very highly contested part of the world. All right, so we just lost internet for a second, and uh, our, our editor, Yamabe, he's cut it off somewhere that hopefully made sense, and we're going to try to pick up hopefully where it made sense. What I know is that I had dropped the word Wilsonianism. I said, Wilsonianism comes home to roost. And what I should have yeah. said is the marriage of Wilsonianism and the Monroe Doctrine coming home to roost. When you put those two things together, you get us supporting places like Israel historically that then put right. us way out there globally in maybe right. unique ways that you know, aren't just beneficial to the country. I don't know. Right. So the idea that Wilson says the reason that we're going to go into World War One, which he promised us in both his election campaigns, he wouldn't do when he takes us in. He says we're going to make the world safe for democracy. The issue with democracy is that it becomes like Marxism, an ideology which can be applied anywhere. Like uh, there are lots of ideologies. You could say my ideology is I'm against white settler states. Therefore, I'm against the United States and Israel and Australia. You know, you could. These sorts of ideologies can get you into any power struggle. Hmm. And what I'm saying is when you think about Rwanda, the fact that we don't probably have any strong feelings about Tutsis or Hutus is because we don't necessarily have any ideology attached to those definitely existing ethnic groups. When you have an ideology that can potentially go anywhere, you're going to end up in power conflicts that you can neither fix nor sometimes even understand. Right? Why do certain Americans have really strong feelings about whether or not Kurds should have their own nation state? Let the Kurds fight with the Arabs and the Turks over it. But no, lots of us have strong feelings about that. There are even Americans that went to fight for Kurdish, for a Kurdish nation state, at least in northern Iraq, let alone southeastern Turkey. So there are certain ideologies, and usually they become their own sort of word carrying all kinds of emotional connotations a worker's paradise, democracy, whatever it is. And those words function as power terms, both to indicate how power should operate, but also to get you to do something that you probably never thought about doing before, like having really strong feelings about and maybe even firing a gun in favor of Kurdish independence. Doing things you never thought you would do before. That's what religions are for, is they they tell you and (laughs) convince you to do things you've never done before. And I'm going to just make this case here again that I don't care how secularist you are. Ideology does exist, and yeah. if you just go back and read the whole Bible and substitute idolatry with the word ideology, you'll find they're just not so far apart. The image which is worshipped is about an idea that is to be pursued and desired. And and yeah. to, to think that, say, in some ways what you're saying is that the, these names, Marxism, democracy, they're jargon now. 
They don't mean anything, but they've come become likened to the names of false gods. And I call them false gods because uh, I don't think they're really gods, but people certainly worship them and chase them as if they were gods. Uh, and, and that can be everything from, again, Marxism, democracy, make the world safe. You know, everyone's going to live. Right. You know, black lives matter. It's, it's, it, it is – you cannot like religion all you want. You cannot take the religion out of the animal that is man. And it is a way to explain his role in relationship with power because we talked about this last time too. There's two ways you're controlled, by the sword and by the conscience. Uh, yeah. By the sword and by the conscience. Um, by a story and by a spear. Uh, do you want to have a final word and then we'll close this thing up? We're, we're over time. But the point today was colonial semi-Shematism, right? Because what are we even talking about? <laughs> and, and other sorted historical yeah. anomalies. Yeah. I mean we're all over the map. But the idea is colonialism and tribe in the idea of empire a little bit. I don't know. I don't, what, what are we really trying to do? Can you gist this episode at all? <laughs> well, what's happening is that power is infinitely divisible along different human lines. And you don't know the reason that revolutions happen, not according to the way the revolutionaries thought, but according to the way that power begins to be desired in practice is because you don't know what the future is going to be, but ideologies always promise to you that you do. Hmm. Marx promises you that if you just implement his scientific analysis of economics, here's what the future will look like. Wilson promises that if the Americans go to Europe, this is what the future will look like. Uh, early Zionism promises that the world will work in this certain way. Well, it didn't work out that way, and they're not even the Zionists that get to have the say these days. So what happens with ideology is that it co-ops these human differences, some of which are socially constructed and some of which are genetic, maybe economic, maybe whatever. And ideology takes you places you never thought you'd be, again, fighting for things that you never thought you'd have to care about. Uh, a lot of the time, because you don't you don't have the control over what you love and what you're told to care about that you think you do. Power usually has a much stronger grasp on you than it will admit to you. They won't need thought police when they're telling you what yeah. to think from right. the start. Power is the prestige that rules the mob, and there is no power like a mythology with a great eschatology. And if you don't know what I mean, you should. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of trouble understanding your life on this planet. It's a brief history of power with two white guys. Oh. 